Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation. Very glad to be here. I didn't know this organisation existed. Endless interpretation, meaning and judgment in the humanities. I'm not quite sure what I'm talking about. I think I'm trying to talk about the language in which we talk about education, higher education. I think I'm talking about the language in which we do or don't speak about the humanities. And I'm talking about the way in which we speak about the university education that we all are involved in. And to a very limited extent, we're going to be talking about the involvement of the trousers in professional education. I'm just going to have to find something in my bag. Excuse me. I'll mind you that even better. <coughs> Can we turn the, um, the other lights down for a second? Is that possible? And the full beauty of this picture emerges. Let's see if I can find something. <laughs> ah. Thank you very much. I guess you are fairly familiar with this picture. It's, it's your note by Paul Gauguin, dated, I think, to the 1860s. Paul Gauguin went out to Tahiti, as did many Europeans in the 19th century, because there appeared to be a new kind of culture there, very different from the culture of Europe. And famously, Paul Gauguin left his wife and children behind in poverty because he had a drive, an ambition, a sense that this was his destiny. I use this picture at the start of a second year undergraduate module that I teach. It's called Philosophy of Social Science. And it's offered to undergraduates throughout the university. It was originally designed for the uh, combined social sciences degree, which I then ran. And it attracts people from education, geography, sociology. And it was meant to save them from the terrible, I remember Anya's words, stultifying, limiting notions of social science. All the social science students in faculty, I think almost without exception, have to do a second year of research in methods. It tells you that the only real research is quantitative, that the apotheosis of social science research is randomized control trials. It's all got to be terribly scientific. So it's antidote. And I open the second year module by asking them, what can you see? Gauguin went out and he painted the society that he saw. Well, maybe he did, maybe he made something up, I don't know. What can you see? Can you interpret the society, please? Does it have interpretation? This is your start of the <laughs> There aren't many codes. Exactly. They're not very much like us, are they? They're more, what, natural perhaps? They are a little bit covered up, rather more than I would have expected. Not all of them. No, it's like that's Christ. Sorry? It's like Christ, that's a little bit. It's really just Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. What's he? What's he reaching up for? Fruit. So who is he? Is Christ and his Adam, or Eve? Or who is Eve? And he is right at the very start. So is, does that symbolise perhaps <coughs> the introduction of the natives of the South Seas to Christianity? They've pushed Adam and Eve and Christ to the fore. Maybe. I don't know. What else can you see? Every year I show people this. They give me something new and they see something that I haven't seen before. What else can you see? There's something there's something interesting here, isn't there? It yeah. looks like maybe it's a, it's a rogue figure. It doesn't look like a South Sea figure to me. No. Maybe it's a, a, a religious icon. Anything obvious? What else can you see? Just kind of sitting around. Hmm? There's a lot of sitting around. There's a lot of sitting around. Who's sitting around with them? Animals. Animals. This, these people are very close to animals. They're not like us. They haven't banished the animal world to zoos and abattoirs. They're part of the fabric. You've got a duck. Hard to see quite what these are. Maybe piglets. <coughs> you have a goat here. A dog over here. Anything else? You're terribly obvious. No secrets. Life cycle. Sorry? Life cycle, baby, into an old lady. That's very interesting, isn't it? Old age, baby, yes. There's some kind of life cycle here. So they, have, they haven't banished the old people to a care home yet. <laughs> Anything else? What about, what about this character here? Yeah, an idol, a statue. An idol, a statue. So maybe this is the old South Seas, and maybe this is the new. Somebody last week noticed something I hadn't seen before. They've turned their back on him. And all those years. And the story is that when the Europeans went out to the South Seas and to Hawaii and all of these other cultures that they were beginning to investigate, and they found that they had all sorts of taboos and strange customs. It was actually quite easy to stop them. So the story goes. Whose story that is, I don't know. And is that progress or is it loss? And the title of the picture is up on the top left where, who are we? What are we? Are we animals? Are we angels? Where do we come from? And I said, well, this is what we're talking about for certain times. What kind of creatures are we? Are we essentially bundles of genes and molecules for scientific investigation only? Do we have some sort of destiny, some sort of telos, some kind of human nature that we might investigate through literature, poetry, anthropology, and so on? It's meant to put in the student's mind the idea that this is all about the meaning of behavior, the meaning of what you see, the interpretation of these things, not counting them and measuring them. And as I was thinking about this this morning in my hotel, because after breakfast I went into my emails 
never do this, never do this, <laughs> for heaven's sake. And there's an email advertising three, three PhDs which involve immensely sophisticated data manipulation and investigation. And they're very well funded. And this, of course, is what the ESRC has been pushing for some time. Advanced research methods of that quality And I thought the contrast here was really worth bringing home. Interpretation. It's such an extraordinarily gentle word, isn't it? And yet it, it brings with it so much. It brings with it the idea that you can go back and reinterpret. And the fact that every year somebody sees something new, something often which takes me back, like the other last week's realization that it's going back from the lovely kind of image, I think, of how you always reinterpret. You go back to a novel you've read before, it's quite different. You see a film for the fourth time. Wow, how did I miss that? How many times would you need to read a poem before you felt you really got it? It's a silly question, because as you become more sophisticated as a reader and as an interpreter, you know. And does that mean then that there is no such thing as truth here, but there's no such thing as anything final? There is this kind of endless immersion which makes the possibility of the kind of personal growth that I was talking about. There's a lovely remark in the book by Faye Weldon. It's called Letters to Alice. And the book is set as if it were a series of letters to her niece. And she writes in this book, It's always wonderful to find out that there is a view of the world, not just the world. A pattern to experience, and not just experience. And whether you agree with the view offered, or like the pattern, neither here nor there. Views are possible. Patterns discernible. It's exciting and exhilarating and enriching to know it. Isn't that lovely? And if you want to write an article called Not Just the World, I, I, I'm having it. That's what it is. <laughs> it's always wonderful to find out that there is a view of the world and not just the world. This disturbs my colleagues in the School of Education. Because it looks as if everything is up for grabs. Any interpretation of do as well as any other. What's happened to the idea of objectivity? I smile and look away. And of course this will apply to the arts and humanities generally. And I, I'm taking this as distinctive of the arts and humanities. I'm not think talking about simply a way of justifying them, as if the humanities honed up our capacity for judgment and interpretation, though I try to think on the whole they do. I'm talking about trying to get back to a language 
in which the, the marvel of the humanities makes sense. If you know Richard Rorty's work, you'll know that Rorty says, we don't make progress as a culture by seeing the theory is wrong and having other theories there. It doesn't work like that. We, we start to talk a different language because we begin to find the previous one a bit limited. And after a bit, the new language begins to take over. And it seems to me that we have abandoned the, the search. Many of us have abandoned the search for a new language, which could be an old language for public, of course. Because we've got stuck in that language, which only drew our attention to the language of competences and skills and ticky boxes, and we have filled the lives of trainee teachers, trainee social workers and so on, with stuff that they can tip off as, as evidence of what they've achieved. Well, I had the opportunity over the weekend, and it's quite by chance, to talk to a senior tutor in the programme called Frontline. Do you know about Frontline? Frontline is a relatively new way of training social workers. The old way, which the man I was talking to was, which he had himself undergone, was very disparaging of. You did an MA at the university, you did a lot of theory in social work, you learned about psychodynamics, you learned about child psychology, you might be involved in child protection. And then mysteriously you went out and did a placement. It's not the old way of training to be a teacher. Um, and then somehow you had to stagger off and do it for a real next year. And I knew that Frontline, Frontline takes very well qualified graduates and it gives them very, very intensive teaching of a certain sort. They do units based in various universities. He, he works in the University of Warwick. The courses are taught partly by specialists at um, the Tavistock Institute in London, which is committed to a very psychodynamic, psychoanalytically inspired vision of human beings and how they interact. And the question I asked this man, do you use literature? And he said, ah, he said, one of the first things they hit us with, well, that was the phrase he used, is the words of poem. I'm going to read it to you. It's called We Are Seven. <coughs> Anybody know the poem? A simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? I met a little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many a curl that clustered round her head. She had a rustic woodland air, and she was wildly clad. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. Sisters and mothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many? Seven more, she said. I'm wondering, And where are they, I pray you tell? She answered, seven are we. And two of us at Conway dwell, and two have gone to sea. Two of us in the churchyard line. My sister and my brother. And in the churchyard cottage, 
I dwell near them with my mother. You say that two at Conrad, and two at Old Sea. Here she are seven. I pray you tell, sweet maid, how this may be. Then did the little maid reply, Seven boys and girls are we. Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. None about, my little maid, your limbs they are alive. If two are in the churchyard maid, then we are only five. Their graves are green, they may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I, I hem, and there upon the ground I sit, I sing a song to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The first that died was Sister Jane, in bed she moaning lay, till God released her of her pain, and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid, and when the grass was dry, together around her grave we played, my brother John and I. And when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go. I lost a piece of paper. Nothing like using a piece of paper. You laugh verse on And he lies by her side. <laughs> How many are you then, said I, if, if those two are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply. Oh, master, we are seven. They are dead. Those two are dead. Their spirits are in heaven. I was throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will. And said, nay, we are seven. And the guy I was talking with said this was a most immensely disturbing experience at the beginning of your social work training course. Where you might be involved very heavily in What will they do? Well, you have the wise voice of the child, and then you have this dull adult who likes to count things. And realizes the child can't oh, count. Two Conway, two at sea, one left. And it was something about listening to children, taking their experiences seriously. And of course, a lot of the students, his fellow students, he said, were it's, it's a poem. Why, why are we reading a poem? Oh. So you don't want to read poetry. What is it you're afraid of? This is, where the, this is where it is going. You notice how the man doesn't listen to the little girl. What is it about poetry you don't want to listen to? And this, was, this sets the scene for a vision of working with people, with families, adults, with children, in which you take their voices seriously, you take their experiences seriously. You don't expect to find the answers in conventional research. And in fact, conventional research may be itself engaged in trying not to listen very much to the voices of children and the handicapped and the old. And there is a story here, and I think it's a very important story, that in the period that we call modernity, which is roughly 1600 to the present, 
a certain language has taken over, and it's taken over so much that we don't notice it's taken over. And it is the language in which we talk of scientific explanation. And it's quite helpful to have the German word here, I think, erklären. It's a lovely, rich word because it's about shedding light on what is really there. Erklären. German notion, clair, clarity. If you're talking to German friends about what we're going to do today, eventually you decide what we're going to do, and one something about to say, Hans Clair. Is that right? Hans Clair. It's all, I know. It's all collaborative. And so we look for scientific explanations because we're on the heirs of the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries and beyond, which sort of literally characterized. It developed microscopes, it developed telescopes, and all kinds of things with lenses and lights. And if you know those wonderful pictures, by Joseph Wright of Derby, the philosopher with the orrery and the light and the experiment with the air pump. There's light, wonderful light everywhere illustrating science. There's a, an undertone of something else in Joseph Wright because they've killed a bird in the air pump to illustrate the need for oxygen in the children washing pump. And that has penetrated universities, it's penetrated training courses. It's given us the idea of social science. And how odd is that? How odd social science? I say to the students, do I have a white coat? Do you see any bunsen burners? Why is it science? And of course it's simple because everybody thought science was the only way to go, so you had to dignify any kind of inquiry as a science. It's odd. It's so odd. It's what Wittgenstein is talking about when he says in the investigations, a picture held as captive. And he's talking about himself as much as anything. In his earlier work, the Tractatus, which is fiercely mathematical and fiercely scientific in its sentences. By contrast, we need increasingly to think of a different word. Verstehen. Perfectly ordinary human understanding. Understanding the meaning of people's behaviour. I ask my students, when you go back to your shared house and you see one of your friends sitting there in the kitchen on the kitchen table with her head in her hands and she looks as if she's been crying, and you make a cup of tea, maybe she doesn't want to say very much, and she takes it away to her room, and you go, oh yeah, and she's depressed. We know, we think we know, that there's a lot of mental health Does that student, that fellow student, need a doctor? Does she need a friend? Does she love a team? If you know what's going on here at universities, universities are being accused of everything, we're accused of ignoring our students' mental health needs. So what do universities do? They appoint counsellors. Well, those counsellors might be humane. Increasingly, they are sent to medical practitioners, which was having solved the university these are the specialists. It's not obvious to me that certain kinds of things are happiness, loneliness, depression, are mental illnesses. It was the push of science that made us think of it like that. 
maybe sometimes it's right, but no doubt some people do desperately need a very well qualified psychiatrist. The ordinary human understanding with your friends, your family, etc., is probably more important, more useful than we know. And it's that Verstehen, the ordinary understanding, that you bring to bear on the poem, on the whole. Yet you will find in your university libraries, books, all the science of literary criticism, the science of political thought. Because again, we're still picking up the echo of that thought that everything has to be scientific. And this is, I think, the crucial move we have to make. Hooray for science, but it isn't everything. Do you know, I guess many of you know who Sports Direct are? Sports Direct are a massive retailer of sports clothes, leisure wear that looks sporty, replica football shirts, trainers, and stuff. And it became clear that not all was well in the Sports Direct warehouses. That people were being run ragged. They were being sanctioned for going to the loo without permission. They were sanctioned for taking the day off because they were ill. And if you got six sanctions, not wrong. And you can tell that people were suffering very badly. And then they managed to get some figures out of the local ambulance services about how many times the ambulances had been summoned to the warehouses. And it was absolutely horrifying. And the select committee has comments investigating. And the chairman of the select committee, Ian Wright, he was then uh, MP for Hardwall South, I can't remember which was gave a wonderful interview on one of the BBC programmes. The question is, how, how did you know what was really going on? You know, you talk to people, you listen to them. How did you know they were telling the truth? Because the content would have been maybe a good conversation. You make me laugh. He said, we looked into their eyes. A hard-boiled politician knows that. Ordinary human understanding. We looked into their eyes. You can tell. You can be wrong. Sometimes you can get it wrong. We looked into their eyes. And isn't that what we do as academics? A student comes to your door. And so I just can't meet the deadline. And you say, I didn't know what you said. And I said, oh, can I help? And they made a story about one before. They've been making up. They've been on the binge for three days in a row. And what do you do? You open their eyes. And you decide, this sounds like somebody, it looks like somebody who's telling the truth. Rarely, I find, do I think, hmm, basically, I find it. And that's what you do with the text. Who looked into his eyes? Who looked into his eyes? And you look back at yourself. You can, I, if, if after a student has come along and I've made a kind of decision on the spot, I said, okay, fine, fine, no problem. Just take a moment. Then when the student goes, I look back at myself. Hmm.
A lot of the thoughts here are quite a bit consuming, as I say, the Stein is absorbed by the idea that we've been all captured by the language of science, the picture of, of, of science. And the difference between the early Wittgenstein and later Wittgenstein is partly that the later Wittgenstein was very quick and simplistic. But the early Wittgenstein saw the meaning of language as given by its kind of connection to the world. The cat is on the mat as meaning because, at least in principle, you can think of or see a cat on the mat. It's banal. And that picture theory of meaning is something banal, as he began to see. And he began to see later that we don't just use words in that sort of way. We use words to promise, to regret, to thank, to swear, etc., etc. And there's an immense multiplicity of meaning. And the trouble is, it's an education. Perhaps again, it's a quickly simplistic, but I'm now you the same thing. Meaning has become narrowed down. Research has become narrowed down to research methods. Reading literature has become reduced down to being taught to put the right phrases in your exam answers, and those are the ones that the exams are looking If you're aware of this, many A level students who then go to the grades will tell you if they trust you in the correct books. We brought in marker pens with us and we were told to mark these phrases and then why would you read the books? In fact, we do just as well. I now heard that sufficiently often to just be quite sure that it is true. A lovely story a few years ago, I was teaching third year one of the group, and we were in social science, which were even more wacky than second year model, the postmodern terms of positive study. And I said, they, they had to read about the second part of the term. They must have read the Atalans of the Postmodern Condition. About 140 pages? Quite dense. And the girl came to see me, she was just reading a book. I read a book. Now, I happen to know which I've interviewed this girl and looked at the Festival. She had three early aims from a very well regarded sixth form college in the South Kingdom. Are you writing me up, Polly? No, no, she comes. Maybe we just put the hand out, practice writing the answers. Isn't that wonderful? That's how we narrow down language. And we need to recover that sense of language as immensely complex and immensely rich and not fixed. <coughs> I've been absorbed recently, I'm trying to write something about the fashionable idea of character education in schools. And this character education will be based on the virtues, the honesty, courage, service comes up quite often. And people, people give in for this sort of stuff as if we knew what they meant, as if the words stood still. Service. I have a daughter. I've never wanted my daughter to go to a school which tried to incomplete the virtue of service. Would you? If you look at the sort of stuff that's being produced for the schools, you find that courage has a There's a program produced under the aegis of Julie Central Birmingham, written 
will introduce the character, and will introduce the book, and the knightly virtues. Hello. The knightly virtues. That's K N I G What is your problem? Knights or chaps? There's a picture of that, those are individuals, how, how well all this went down in the, in the, in the junior school. There's, there's a crowd of children, and they've made wooden carpets. And on your right is a boy who has made what looks like a wooden sword. In the middle there is a girl who appears to have made a scabbard of the sword. This is in Burnham, where more children are registered as Muslim now than as Christian. Hmm. You can't make it up, can you? So I'm not putting this forward as justifying the humanities. Almost anything that you can put forward to justify the humanities risks becoming instrumental. And the last thing I ever want to do is to say, well, look, you've used the humanities to train psychoanalysts, you've used them to train teachers. That, that must, I mean, we've lost everything if we do that. Isn't that right? We have to be able to talk about the humanities in a way that just kind of makes it clear. That's what I've been trying to do. That in, in themselves, because they do this or that, just obviously, when you think about it, they just are wonderful and extraordinary themselves. Justifying um, what the universe is for. Stefan Collini takes issue with the RBF. He imagines just hopping into a big lorry and putting into big piles of books on history, literary criticism, and all the stuff that the universe has produced, and just dumping them all on the doors of the relevant ministry. Say, That's all really good, isn't it? That's his way of dramatizing how not to go about justifying the humanities, instead justify them for themselves. And when you look now at what's going on, the regimes of testing, which narrow the curriculum, the culture of speed, Veneration of science and STEM subjects, as we know, is, is STEM subjects are now being promoted as the answer to everything, science, techn technology, engineering, and mathematics. The idea of artist therapy. I mean, this looks such a good idea, doesn't it, in a way? And there was an exhibition a few years ago at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. There were pictures, and there were big posters, kind of exaggerated posters, and those told you what you were supposed to feel. So by the night watch, you know, the great team portrait of the, the night guard. Don't you hate crowds? You're very crowded. And it, wouldn't you like to be part of a group of common purpose? <laughs> there was another one of a ship, I can't remember the name of them, it shows a sea battle, and the ship has been blown up. And there are people staggering up gradually. Um, don't you feel that disaster is, is never far away? 
all of this was being put together as if to say, look at these pictures, we have therapy for some of them. I know some ludicrous, some ludicrous it seems to me. But what did look a bit closely? You, you, you glance, I sat there, and I saw people coming in with personal and the, the challenge here, as with the literature of the poetry, is to have people dwell and interpret and reinterpret, not be told what they're seeing, what they're reading, what they're listening to. My younger son is the, what's it called now? It's called Registrar. Uh, which is a, a rank between curator and senior curator. He works in Bishop Auckland where there's a great new faith museum, uh, a museum of mind arts, various other galleries and museums, largely founded by uh, a man from Jonathan Rutter with 110 million pounds of his own And then some matching funding from English heritage. It's a massive and very impressive exercise. And one of the things that my son has to do when he makes applications to English heritage, he has to write about social returns. The social returns, when people come and see their grandparents, as it were, uh, working in the mines and you see them of mining art, that would give them an increased sense of, of pride, and, and that would mean that they'll go to and all museums and galleries are now engaged in doing this and of course it's actually very expensive that people spending weeks of their time putting this guff together And of course, neoliberalism. This is the key is it, to understanding how the humanities have been so downgraded. Under neoliberalism, they become something you sell. And of course, you can do it very nicely. You can point out, as I wanted to, when people come to work every day. Long our students who have degrees in philosophy and English are very well paid. I won't say that. And the wonderful thing is that the students never ask. For years I've pushed out where students go uh, into the training department to look around and have a chat and I would give them a talk. And I started by saying, what are you doing? They never said, take the power of your own. They never said. They never said. I remember one girl said, what do you want? Do you not think that's what I want to do? And lots of variations on that. They weren't yet totally sold down the road by the end of the And the other thing that strikes me here, and again, this is something I, I'd like to devote, I don't quite want to take it. It does strike me that the humanities are a barrier against fundamentalism. Fundamentalism? I mean neoliberalism. I'm not absolutely hopeless, dangerous fundamentalism. 
It seems to me that anybody who's had a decent humanities education ought to be incapable of thinking in a fundamentalist way. The fundamentalists think of everything totally. They I'm very puzzled about pattern developments is because it seems to me the least possible, at least as possible, that people of a certain sort of disposition, given a very broad liberal approach to humanity, may run terror from it to fundamentalism. It seems to me at least as likely is the idea that the humanities can get back against it. And I suppose we need some empirical research on the slightest idea of the world. And of course, the endless instrumentalism, which for the best of reasons, we may all find ourselves going in for saying that it helps you be a social worker, a nurse. And there's a lot of evidence that those instrumental approaches just don't seem to work. One of our previous vice chancellors was Ed Cowman. He had been um, chief officer before he came to us, and very interested in more kind of enlightened approaches to <coughs> training doctors. <coughs> doctors who actually have to think about the whole person and not about, not about the technicalities of the disease they're suffering from. And he was very interested in various programs that have been set up around the world. The part of doctors' training would be sit around and discuss it. And so there's actually no evidence of any of that any of whatsoever. And finally, another picture. Landscape with the fall of Icarus. Icarus and his father have fled Crete, where Daedalus, the great craftsman, was kept by King Minos in the middle labyrinth. And Daedalus were fed up by being kept there as his tame craftsman, so he made wings for himself as Icarus. And off they flew, and Icarus was told, don't fly too high, there's the sun in the middle of the banks. Don't fly too low, or the sea spray will get into the wings. And this is about 1560, and it's usually attributed to one of the bridles. Apparently, that is increasingly being challenged. There he is. There's Icarus. That's a little leg. What's going on? You've got a ploughman. You've got a shepherd with sheep looking up into the hills. Somebody here is fishing, looking into the water. W. H. Auden has a poem about this 
it's about how pain in the world just goes on. But one of the things one of my students noticed again, it was so obvious, and I hadn't seen it really, they were looking away. The boy is drowning. The ship doesn't stop. That's got somewhere important to go to. And the ordinary everyday workers, the social workers, the teachers, you might say, they do what they do. They get on with business as usual. The ploughman has got so many furrows to plough. Maybe there's performance targets for the fishermen. And they turn away from what actually matters, and that is how a child lives and tries. Another interpretation would be a long question. Okay.